When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwellings in Jerusalem, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one heard, uh, was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these speaking who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and, the last, and in the last days it shall be, that God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. And in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heavens above and the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I had been a Christian for, I don't know, maybe, maybe eight weeks and I had had this really radical conversion experience. Um, I went from sort of not having anything to do with church, not knowing anything about God, to, to finding myself the first going forward for an altar call. That's when they give you an invitation and you go forward to pray with a preacher down in front. And there's probably about 3,000 people at the service and I was the first one to go down there because I just knew, I was convinced, I needed this Jesus. And so I, I had this just, like I said, radical conversion experience. I felt called to ministry the day I became a Christian. Didn't even know what that meant. And about six or eight weeks later, I'm in my room and I'm just, I'd been reading the Bible and I'd been praying with a couple friends who also received Christ that same day. And, um, and I was just like so thankful to belong to the Lord. And I remember laying in my bed and praying, God, I just, I just want more of you. Is that possible? Can I have more of you? And I had this experience, this kind of, only way to describe it was a joy inexpressible and full of glory, where I just, I felt like I was overwhelmed with joy. It was as if, it was as if there was nothing else in my existence but me and God, and it was mind-blowing. 
And I remember the next morning thinking, Lord, what was that about? That was, that was amazing. I, I love you and I want to know you more, but you know, why did you do that? Is that something that I should expect every day? And I remember thinking, why did the Lord do this? And later on that, I think it was that same day, I was meeting with my friends who had became Christians as well. And we were going through a Bible study together. And one of those two friends had actually grown up in church. So he knew the Bible fairly well. And usually what would happen is when the three of us would chat together, that friend who grew up in church would be the one who would explain things we didn't understand. And as we were there together, the three of us together, we began to study something. I don't remember what we were reading together. And my friend who wasn't a, didn't grow up in a church said, what does this mean? And he kind of looked at our friend who did grow up in a church. And he said, you know, I'm not sure. And I said, you know what? I think it means this. And I began to explain how it fit in the context this way and why I felt like it meant this and how we should do this in light of what it says. And they both looked at me like, well, where'd that come from? And I realized actually what had happened was that, that God had given me a gift of teaching. Like that, I had received a supernatural gift of teaching. I was able to understand and articulate what the scripture says, that God had given me this gift. And later on, talking to one of the pastors at our church, he talked to me about this idea of the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit dwells in every single believer, but the Holy Spirit can also come upon believers to give gifts, to empower, to make sure that his word goes to all of his world. And I thought, Lord, however you want to fill me, whatever you want to give me, give it to me because I want to be used by you. Amen. And one of the things I think that we need to understand is, is that when we are pursuing that experience, now I need to say, I didn't know, I, I, there was the church that I was going to wasn't uh, extremely expressive, maybe a little bit more than we are here, to be fair, but it wasn't extremely expressive. And, and uh, we didn't see tons of the, what you might call the sign gifts happening. Occasionally there would be tongues and interpretation. Occasionally there'd be a word of prophecy. There was, they were very, very exuberant in their worship. But there wasn't like, it wasn't like I knew what that was or wanted that certain ex experience. I just knew I wanted more of God. And when God gave me more of him, so to speak, I realized that was for the benefit of other people. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because not that my experience is normative, but also because what's happening here at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, in one sense, is not normative. It's not what we should expect our daily or even weekly experience with God to be. In another sense, it's exactly normative. It's setting out a standard that, that where we would realize that God has said in the New Testament, part of the new covenant he makes with us through Jesus, he makes with his people through Jesus, is that we would have the Spirit of God not just dwelling in us, but overflowing us for the benefit of others. And so what I want to do is, as we talk about just this in this first section, I want to talk about three main things. About how this promise that, that Peter preaches on, this promise that God will pour out his spirit on all his people. What that means for us today. And the first thing is this, okay? We're going to look at verses 1 to 4. The first thing is I want you to see, this is about a power that is necessary for every single witness. Now verse 1 tells us really clearly, Luke writes for us, that the day of Pentecost had fully arrived. If you remember from last week, where we were at was we saw that these disciples, these 120 followers of Jesus, they were waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus had commanded them to wait. 
And they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And as they're in Jerusalem, of course, they, they've been around Jerusalem probably for the previous 40 days because Jesus was crucified at Passover, which is actually 50 days before Pentecost. That's where the word Pentecost comes from. It's Greek for 50. And so, so they're, they're waiting probably in Jerusalem for that reason, but they're also waiting, listen, they're waiting because God had made this promise. Jesus had made this promise. He's going to pour out his spirit. And so here they are. They're, they're waiting for this next feast, this Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks after Passover, also known as a Feast of Harvest. And they're waiting there. And what did we see last week? They're praying and they're seeking for God's will. They want to see the words of Christ fulfilled. And if you didn't get to, to see last week, go back and listen to the message. But the reality is, this Feast of Pentecost was an ordained opportunity. It was the perfect time for God to pour out his spirit. Why? Well, one, tradition has it, the, the sort of Jewish tradition had grown up right before Jesus' time that, that, that the, 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 the Feast of Weeks, or this Feast of Pentecost, it was actually the, probably the time that Moses received the Ten Commandments. They had that conviction. And so because of that conviction, in a sense, the Ten Commandments were, were, was God ratifying his covenant. God was saying, this is my covenant with my people. And so what you see at Pentecost, in a sense, is God saying, this is my covenant with my people through Jesus. But also it's interesting because it says that they were all together in one place. Later on it mentions that they're in a house. Many people think this is the same upper room where they were waiting on the Lord. It might have been, but it might be something different. We, we know from the context it would have had to have been right near the temple court. In fact, it could have even been one of those kind of areas around the temple court where people would congregate. It had to be there because when Peter begins to preach, we're going to see Sorry, spoiler alert for next week. We're going to see 3,000 people getting saved. And so the assumption is there was at least 3,000, if not more. So it had to have been a place big enough. The only place in Jerusalem big enough would have been the temple court. So, so, so they're in this place, and it's the perfect place and the perfect time for God to pour out his spirit. And so what happens? He does. And here's how it happens. Verse 2 says, Suddenly from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So Luke's describing what he knows of this, of this time. He, he wasn't there, but he knew people that were there. So Luke is describing what they described the time like. They said, it was, well, it was like a mighty rushing wind. That's totally appropriate because it's interesting. In Greek and in Hebrew and in Latin, actually, the word for wind is also the same word for spirit or for breath. They're all the same word. And so for God to sort of get people's attention through a mighty rushing wind makes sense. It also makes sense for this reason. Listen, wind was the power that the ancient world needed to tap into most. How did you move your ships? With wind. <laughs> and wind had the power to radically change your direction in an instant. And so this is, this is the picture that God sends. But also it says... That there were in verse 3, it says they were, they were divided tongues of fire. Some versions say distributed tongues of fire, which I think might be more accurate. And it says that they appeared on each of them. Now, now this is not, he's not saying that there was fire, but what was like fire. It was, again, an image. It was a sign, a picture. Why? Well, when God makes his covenant with his people Israel through Moses, what's on the mountaintop? Fire. 
And what did that fire represent? The purifying presence of God, the holiness of God, that even if they went there, they'd be consumed. But here in this new covenant, because of what Jesus has done, each and every one of these believers can have the very fire of God in them, that purifying work of God in them. So these signs, they indicate the abiding presence of God, both God's power so that they can proclaim and be transformed. We'll talk about more of that in a second. But also God's purity, God's purifying work. This is the purpose of the coming upon of God's Holy Spirit. It's not just to have the manifestation of tongues or even to see radical things happen, though that does happen. It's so, listen, it's so that God's people can experience God's abiding presence and be transformed by by that. John the Baptist said in in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus himself, of course, said, we we just saw this a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 1, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper. That is a, a reference to the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Why will he be with us? Why does, this, does Jesus send the Spirit to dwell in us? That we might have power. Power to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Power to be changed by the truth of who Jesus is. This is a power for every witness. In fact, it, look at verse 4, what it says in verse 4. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this power that was given them on the day of Pentecost, listen, it was given to each and every one of them. There wasn't like a a separate select group of believers in Jesus that had extra power. All of them got this power. All of them received the Holy Spirit. And they did so, listen, for the benefit of others. Now, we talked about, didn't we, when we were going through 1 Corinthians, that the gift of tongues can be used for self-edification. It can be used to build an individual up. That is not what's happening here, though. God is giving them this ability to speak in a natural language they don't naturally know, as we'll see really obvious in the context, for witness. It's to benefit somebody else. Now, do you remember what Jesus said in the end of Matthew's gospel? Do you guys remember the Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? In part, it's this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus commands, go. Go. Right before he sends to heaven, he says, go. But then what do we read in the book of Acts? Jesus said, wait. Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Go. Wait. Go, wait, go, wait, go, wait. I mean, what's this all about? But there's something really important we need to see. This is Jesus basically wanting them to walk in what he again had told them the night before he was crucified in John chapter 15. Jesus said plainly, for without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Man, if you can't love your neighbor apart from Jesus working in you by the power of your spirit, What makes you think you can go out and share the gospel at the risk of persecution with the whole world apart from the work of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit? 
He has called us to go. Nobody gets the option, no Jesus follower gets the option of ignoring that command. But no Jesus follower can fulfill that command apart from the power of his Holy Spirit. Are you guys following me? See, see here's the deal, okay? And, and, I, and I wrote this kind of point on the screen. It should be on the screen because I want you guys to hear what I'm saying. I want you guys to hear it and to read it and to see it. Here's the deal. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses of Jesus through two ways. Transformation, that is us demonstrating the good change that Jesus brings, and proclamation, that is explaining how Jesus brings that change. The power of God's Holy Spirit is in every Jesus follower, listen, so that we can be changed. We can actually demonstrate it's good to have Jesus as our Lord and so that we can proclaim this is what Jesus has done to make us his. This is why we can say that he's our Lord. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine that you are a cup. You're a cup that's meant for drinking. But the problem with your cup is that it's cracked and it leaks. And worse than that, you're constantly filling up your cup with sewer water. That's you. A leaky, broken cup full of sewage. That's you. That's me. And what happens is... We, we can say, oh, God, I hate being this way. I'm going to dump out that sewage, and I want to be filled up with you. But let me ask you a, a question seriously. If today we fill up your cup with sewage, are you going to just dump it out and then fill it up with some coffee and drink it? You're probably, for using those disposable cups, going, I'm chucking that away and starting fresh. But you would at least, if it was a, a proper cup, you would at least want to wash it. But Okay, so maybe you try to wash it as best you can, but it's got all those cracks and I don't know if you know anything about cups, but especially cups that would have been made of clay, they're going to absorb whatever was in it. So it's leaky, it's polluted. And the problem is, no matter what you seem to do, it keeps filling up with sewage. Here's what Jesus does. Listen, what Jesus does is he comes in and he cleanses the cup in a way that's perfectly clean. And then listen, he fills up the cracks with his righteousness. See, we talk about Jesus' death for us. And he did indeed die a substitutionary death for us. We talk about his resurrection for us. That when he resurrected, his life guarantees us new life. But you know what else he did? He lived for us. The life that you and I couldn't live. He lived for us. And that righteousness is given to us as a gift. And it fills in the cracks so that we can be filled. Guess what he fills us with? is Holy Spirit, living water. And guess who that cup full of the Holy Spirit's for? It's for us to give to others. You guys following me? See, it's a power necessary for every witness. The more we're changed, the more we're able to say, it's God who's done this change through Jesus, and it's the goodness of Jesus that makes me want to change. Now, But it's not just that. It's not just the power for every witness. Also, look at verse 5. It's also an invitation given to every nation. In verse 5 and 6, 
what do we read? We see that they're, they're dwelling in Jerusalem. It says that they're still in Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is Luke's way of hinting God's going to go way further with the gospel than these guys ever planned. And it says, at this sound, that's the sound of like, like a mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together. So they, they hear the sound, they go, what is that? I kind of picture them, that they're all around the sort of temple courtyard, maybe in one of those little areas. They said, okay, it, the, the, at the time of the feast when it's going to begin, let's all gather outside of this temple, on the outside of the temple, the place that all of us can be in together, men and women, let's all gather there. Maybe we'll, we'll continue to seek God for what he wants to do. Let's gather there. And they're there, and then all of a sudden there's just like, Roosh. That's a special effect for you. There you go. And everyone's like, what is that? And then all these people from all these nations start hearing God's name and God's work being praised in their own native tongue. That, that's mind-blowing. Isn't that mind-blowing? It's mind-blowing to me. What you have happening here is, listen... You have this dramatic sound, but you also have this familiar speech. The sound got their attention. But the dialect, the dialects being, being heard in their own language, it held their attention. But also, what do we see happening? In verse 7, Luke lists for us who was there. It says, they were all amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? Okay, these are, all the disciples were forget from the area of Galilee. They all had... Just think of a Norfolk accent, the strongest Norfolk accent you can think of. A rural, a rural accent. And then, with that rural accent still being able to speak perfect Urdu or perfect Spanish or perfect Mandarin, but with a Norfolk accent. <laughs> this is kind of what they're hearing, right? I can't do it, so I won't even try, but you can imagine. And they said, how is it that we hear each of them in our own language? And he lists 15 different nationalities. And I think there's a map just beyond the screen. And, and, and if you can see it, it might not be a very good image, so forgive me. But if you can see it, the, the map is kind of basically, all these are the places where the Jews had kind of spread out a bit. And they're coming back. This is the known world, a part of the Roman Empire that is often referred to as the world in the scriptures. And they're coming back for this feast of, of weeks, so this feast of Pentecost, Okay. And so you're talking about radical, diverse cultures, okay? There's, there's those that were Jews, like they were, they're ethnically Jewish, as well as followers of the God of the Old Testament. But there's also proselytes. They were being, they would have been Gentile converts to Judaism. And there's those that were what we might call Hellenists. They were Jews that were, that were kind of, had kind of absorbed a lot of the Hellenistic or Greek culture. And there's all kinds of different people from all kinds of different nationalities, and they're coming together... And here's the thing that's interesting about these guys, okay? Every one of these cultures, listen, every one of these people would have spoken probably either Greek and or Aramaic, Aramaic being the kind of common language of the Jews what they inherited when they were in Babylon. So in other words, they could have heard the gospel. Peter could have just stood up and preached the gospel. This is what God wanted to do. Could have preached the gospel in Greek or Aramaic, and most of them would have understood, but God didn't want to do it that way. God wanted to do something radically supernatural. Why? Do you guys remember the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11? Here's what we read. What you have is at that point, all the known world in Genesis chapter 11 all spoke the same language. And the indication of Genesis 11 is that they're all coming together to say, we're going to build a tower up to God's 
And we're going to basically, the idea there is we're going to be as high as him. We're going to kick him off his throne. And so what happens? God disperses them. And therefore it says in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So God, listen, God disperses the languages to confuse the people to separate them because they're trying to come together in rebellion against God. What's God doing at Pentecost? He's reversing that curse. And he's saying, I'm going to bring them back together with diverse cultures, but back together under one message. As they said, they heard the wonderful works of God. And so this happens in verse 12. Here's what we read. It says, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Some people do what maybe you're tempted to do. Oh, that's, there's, a, there's a reasonable explanation for it. They're just drunk. It's not really God. It's something else. It's funny how quick we can come up with any excuse when we won't believe the truth. But actually what's happening here, in fact, it's interesting. It says in verse 6, they were bewildered. It says in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished. And then in verse 12, amazed and perplexed. And the, the idea of all those different words being used to describe what their feeling was, they don't know what to make of what they've seen and they don't know how to respond and this is often what happens with us. There's something about who Jesus is and what he does that we find attractive, that we know we need or we know we want, but we're not sure how to respond. And I want to just encourage you, if that's even you right now, if you're in this place where you're just still trying to decide if you even want to believe in Jesus or not, and you're not sure how to respond, can I encourage you in something? Listen, that's a good indication that God is preparing you. If they're attracted, you don't know how to respond. God's preparing you because he wants you to know how to respond to him. Because here's what happens. These might be perplexed people, but God's preparing their hearts. And here's what brings us to the third and final thing we want to see about Pentecost. It's a promise fulfilled in every generation. Verse 14 says that Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So this is Peter standing up with the other 11 apostles. Now, he's standing up with these guys to show we are those, remember we saw last week, testifying of who Jesus is, of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And what Peter does here is interesting. He interprets the experience that these people had through what God's word says. He lifts up his voice. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Nine o'clock in the morning, dude, it's a bit too early to be drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, this is important to understand. He's not interpreting Joel's words in Joel chapter two. He's quoting from Joel chapter two. You can look it up yourself. He's not interpreting Joel's words through their experience. He's interpreting their experience through Joel's words. This is important. Because here's the reality. If we are not open to whatever God wants to do, we're gonna miss out. And we're not gonna experience probably the power that we need to be witnesses. But if we'll take any experience and then try to make the, the scripture kind of explain what it is, we can be deceived. But that's not what they're doing here. 
God told them, Jesus had told them, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. So they're waited as Jesus said. And as Jesus said, the Spirit comes on them so they can be witnesses to all nations. And as Jesus said, they are witnessing right there to all nations. And Peter recognizes this is a fulfillment of God's word. This is what God is doing. It's about a promise. A promise that Jesus made, a promise that has been made throughout the Old Testament to those who would know the new covenant that the Messiah would bring. Verse 17, continuing the promise, Peter says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then Joel's really clear, and Peter brings it out by explaining what Joel says. Listen, he says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I'm in the dreaming section. And your male servants and your female servants, even in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Do you recognize what's happening here? He's saying it's a promise without condition of age or gender or social status. It doesn't matter what your native language is, what your native dress is. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how educated you are. None of that matters. If you believe in Jesus, the promise of Jesus is for you. You can be filled with his spirit to both be able to be transformed and be able to proclaim the goodness of God. See, here's how how Paul sums up the reality of of what we have in Christ. He says in Galatians 3.20, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are not ignoring these distinctions. What they're saying is, as far as God's promises to us, they don't matter. And as far as our ultimate identity, they don't matter. Because who we are, sons and daughters, we actually, actually, let me correct that. Who we are are sons. We're sons of God through faith in Jesus. Why do I say that? Because when the Bible says that we're sons, it doesn't mean that we're all males. It means that we're all up for inheritance. Because the girls, the women, they didn't inherit. It was the sons that inherited, specifically the firstborn son. Because Christ is the firstborn son, we share in his inheritance. It's like we're all firstborn sons, so to speak. The promise that God makes to his people is ours without condition of our age or gender or social status. But also, verses 19 and 20, it's a promise that's applicable until the Lord comes back. Look what happens in verse 19. Again, Peter's just quoting what Joel says. He says, I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Great and magnificent day. Now, in Joel's, uh, Joel's uh, uh, prophecy, in Joel chapter 2, the Lord would have referred to Yahweh. Here, Peter seems to be using it of Jesus. And here's what's interesting. Jesus used the same imagery to talk about his return. Listen to this. In, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is speaking. And he says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth distressed of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. And the powers of heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming 
in a cloud with power and great glory. He's talking about his return. Now this is, listen, this is both a warning that Jesus is going to come back and judge the earth, but a hope that until he comes back, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can bring as many people to heaven as possible. This is why he gives us his power. This is also why, listen, this is also why my conviction, though there, I have brothers and sisters who I love dearly, who I know love Jesus, who believe the supernatural stuff has ceased. That was just for the time of the apostles. No, no, no. I think this verse teaches supernatural stuff is still happening. That God's still doing his mighty works until the Lord comes back. But lastly, we're almost done. This promise being fulfilled in every generation, including our generation here and now, is a promise to empower the spread of the gospel. Now, you wouldn't see it uh, in, in, in what you see right here in Acts chapter 2, but if you go back and you read Joel chapter 2, what you'll see is that most of Joel 2, and actually Joel 1 and 2, is indented, kind of like it's indented here. And it's indented because it's, it's prose, it's like poetry. But then the last few verses of Joel chapter 2, they're not indented because it's ceasing being poetry and, and continuing to be what Joel is just kind of commenting on this poetry, on this prophetic poetry. And so really what he says here in verse 21 wasn't part of the poem. It was part of Joel's commentary. And this is important because, listen, Peter is saying that this is the commentary on what God's doing by his Holy Spirit. This is the summation of what he's doing. This is the point of what he's doing. The point is not speaking in tongues. The point is having power to be witnesses. For what end? Listen, and it shall be, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen. It doesn't matter your age or your gender, or your nationality, or how long you've been in church, or if this is the first time you're here at church, or whether you like uh, Americans or not like Americans, none of those things make a difference. All that matters is that you realize this morning that if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That the same power that will fill you to tell that to other people will change you that you'll experience what the Bible calls regeneration or what Jesus says, being born again, where your dead spirit is resurrected to new life. God not only can do that, he promises to do that if you call upon him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, today is a day of salvation if you're willing to call upon him. Do you realize that? You have an opportunity right here, right now. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asks some rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You want beautiful feet? You want to be able to preach the good news to people who need to hear it? 
What you need is first and foremost to have Jesus save you. Uh, Chuck Smith, uh, the guy who started the, the group of churches that we came from, he used to say, Christianity is like the measles. You have to have it before you can give it away. <laughs> if you don't know that Jesus has saved you, you're not going to be able to convince anybody that Jesus can save them. But if you know that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension has saved you, not only do you have the Spirit, but Jesus said, if you, our Father being a good Father who gives good gifts to his children, if you ask for the Spirit, he'll give you more of the Spirit. Or he'll, the Spirit will have more of you is probably a better way to say it. And the Spirit will come upon you to be witnesses. And he will send you to share this good news. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to still feel a, a bit afraid. I, I, I get nervous when I know that I have a chance to witness. Sometimes I get nervous. Sometimes I can even chicken out. But when I, I, I'm in a conversation and I think, Lord, you're opening the door. And I say, Lord, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Help me to speak right now the words of truth. Help me to listen well and to speak well. Fill me. God gives me boldness and wisdom to share the gospel. And it's not because it's me. It's because it's what he wants to do through every single Jesus follower. I will pour out my spirit on all my people. What do you think would happen if each one of us for the next year said, Lord, use me to save just one person. I'll tell you what happened. We'd double in size. I'll tell you what happened. God would be glorified. People would go, what is going on? That cannot happen apart from the power of God's spirit. And the good news is he sent his spirit. 